Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years' experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to talk about your church as a launch platform for a movement. Uh, Not only for other churches, but for other churches that multiply churches. As I get into this, I want to review the five levels of multiplication that I've learned from Todd Wilson and my friends at Exponential. You know, I've been involved in church multiplication all my adult life. Actually, as a youth pastor, when I was in my early, early 20s, a youth group planted a church in Mexico. And then a few years later, I planted a church that I pastored, and from there we begin to plant churches, and the very first one was a reproducing church. So actually, we had kind of moved from what we're calling level two to level five, and then we kind of fell back to level four. And here's what I mean by the the levels, and let me just explain that a little more. Level one is a church that's just struggling to survive. Level two is a church that's nice and comfy, pastor's getting a salary, bills are all paid, and maybe you really have not much impetus to grow. A lot of older congregations are like this. Buildings paid off, everybody's happy, they don't really want change to happen. And then level three is a church that's growing, adding numbers, and in some situations it's adding for addition's sake. It's a church that is really caught up in the whole thing of being bigger and bigger is better. Level four is a church that clones itself, that reproduces itself. I'm going to say that level three and a half is when we begin to do extension campuses. We've almost planted a church, but not quite. When you divest yourself of an extension campus, you now are a level four church. You're reproducing yourself, much like a photocopy machine makes copies. But then level five is where the copies get fuzzy, where you make a copy of the original, and then you make a copy of that copy, and you make a copy of that copy, you make a copy of that copy. Uh, That level five deal requires a certain amount of courage that you're willing to let go and trust the Holy Spirit to do things in other people. And, you know, that's not something I was, I came to very easily early in my life. We planted the first church. They began to plant other churches, but the leader was a really strong guy that I trusted very closely. He's my closest friend at the time. And then we fell back into every church that we plant has Ralph Moore at the core of it. I'm not the kind of leader that wants to wrap a lot of people around me, but I would be involved in budget discussions. I would work with every person just before they went out the door. Somebody else discipled them, but then I would kind of coach them as they went into planting a church. And so I had my fingers all over it. We were reproducing ourselves very effectively. Then I moved to Hawaii. We had a vision that we would reach 1% of the population, which at the time there were a million people, so that's 10,000 people, in 10 years in churches that we either planted or we helped others plant. Now, as soon as you say helped others plant, you lose a measure of control, and you begin to kind of lighten up and let the Holy Spirit take over. But I stood on a beach the first Sunday that we were there and told everybody our goal, and and I said, I'm not going to ever pastor 10,000 people which would be 1% of the population, what I am going to do is disciple some of you guys to become pastors 
And then for us to really accomplish the goal, you're going to have to disciple other people, and they'll become pastors. At that point, we became a level five church. As we get into this different levels of multiplication, we begin to think about our church and the strains that it can accept in terms of change. Some of our churches are really, really resistant to change. Others, usually younger congregations, are far more open to change. And whether you are a level one, two, three, or four church, and you'd like to get to level five, or maybe you're a level one, two, or three church, and you'd like to get to level four, you probably need to think of managing two operating systems at the same time. You do this concurrently. You make room for change off in a corner someplace while you keep business as usual everywhere else. A number of years ago, I was pastoring a church with a staff that was almost entirely a generation younger than me. And they're really into Apple, and I'm really into PC. They got into iPhones, I got into iPhones. Pretty soon, I got a Mac. And then I began to realize I'm carrying this pretty heavy laptop. I have partitioned the hard drive. I use a software called VMware to split the hard drive. One side of the drive is a Windows operating system. The other side is iOS. I eventually begin to realize that I'm running Microsoft Office for Apple on the one side, and then everything else is run on the other side. So eventually, I got rid of that computer and went back to a Windows computer. But I learned something about the value of partitioning operating systems, and that's what I want to talk to you about today, is partitioning the operating system in your church so that you're actually running two operating systems. You're running a business-as-usual system, and then you're running a reproducing or multiplying system off in a corner someplace. You kind of got to do this almost secretively in the beginning. If you go to your people with a big proposal, we're going to begin to plant churches, and I got this great vision, they're probably going to resist you. So the best thing to do would be to pull off in a corner with a few disciples, kind of look for the talented fanatics, the, the gifted fanatics in your church, the guys that are really gung-ho for Jesus and have the, the gifts to go along with it. Disciple a few of them, infuse them with vision. Uh, you might read my book, Let Go of the Ring, which is the Hope Chapel story. And that is pretty much a, a vision builder for a lot of people. And a lot of guys use it in groups to get stuff started. And so you get maybe three, four people together, and you spend a year or so before you ever make a move. But eventually you begin to, to hive some people off into what we're going to call micro churches. As you do this, you operate this thing completely separate from the church. You keep all the church programs intact and you keep everybody as happy as you can. And meanwhile, you begin to bless what these other guys are doing publicly. You talk about from the platform. You make heroes out of people who are actually going forward, making disciples, and, and now maybe even planting some churches. You make your church become very, very proud of the thing that they're doing and excited that it's something that other churches in town aren't doing. And you begin to fulfill the Great Commission in an entirely new way. As we get into this, I learned from a model in Sri Lanka. And I'd like to just kind of tell you that story. I arrived in Sri Lanka, it's like 29 years ago. They were in the middle of a civil war. In fact, we were in a shopping center that had 
been blown up just a couple weeks before. Saw the damage. It was a little bit frightening. But it was very frightening when I got out of the airport. I get out of the plane, go into the deserted terminal. It's 11.30 at night. There's nobody around. They process me. And then they explain to me that no cars are allowed in the parking lot. So I go out, and there's an airport vehicle which drives me through this deserted parking lot to a side gate, not even the main gate of the old thing, but it's a heavily guarded gate, guys with machine guns everywhere. There's a taxi cab there that they've called. It's waiting for me. And we drive into the city of Colombo. As we go, about every half mile, there's a, a little sandbag nest of guys with machine guns. I mean, this country is armed against itself. Civil war is a really, really nasty thing. And so I go and I do my seminar for a week, and some of the pastors who lived in the north where the war was raging actually were imprisoned for trying to come to the seminar. And they were held in jail for a couple of months. It was a very, very disturbing time. And at the end of it, I had to leave in the middle of the night, and so I had been staying in somebody's home, but they put me up in a hotel for that last night. And I'm sitting in the hotel, and, and my ride doesn't show up. It's getting later, getting later. I'm getting more and more worried. And I begin to look through all my stuff, my briefcase, whatever I have, backpack, and I find that I have no phone number for anybody in that whole country. This is kind of typical of me. Twice I've been stranded in Europe for the same reason. I'm just praying and asking God, please cause somebody to notice that I'm here. And the people at the desk, it's a very small hotel. They don't speak English. And eventually my ride shows up. I get down and he's all apologetic. I jump in the car and it's a cool new BMW that I have never seen in the United States. A lot of times they're released in other countries before they get to our country. And so I'm kind of a car nut. So I start asking him about the car and he doesn't want to talk about the car. He goes, ah, oh, it's not even my car. It, it just, it's a company car. And then he starts to tell me about the two churches that he's currently pastoring. The way this thing works is he's a member of a church of about 400 people, maybe 350, where I've been preaching all week. And he pastors two churches, one at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon and one at 7 o'clock or 7.30 on Sunday evening in real poor communities in Colombo. The reason he was late is that the evening church, it was his last night there, he's raised up a disciple, he's moving on, he's all excited, he's going to start his fifth congregation a week from now, and that's what's got him going. He tells me this whole story, and then we get around to the car. And so I, I go, so tell me the story about the car. And he goes, well, like I said, it's a company car. And I go, well, what kind of a company lets you drive a car like this? And he goes, well, actually, I own the BMW distributorship for the country. Here we are, and this is a model, I think. you got a filthy rich guy who's attending a larger church, at that time a big church in Sri Lanka, with his family. He's got his children there. There's stability, there's youth group, there's all those kind of things that we value in a traditional church. But on Sunday afternoon, he goes to places where he told me he won't take his family because it's dangerous for them to go there. And he's taking the gospel to people who otherwise would not hear the gospel. Uh, in that country, they're so poor, they don't have transportation to get to where his church is. But also, they're probably not going to fit if they come to his nice middle class church. This church actually is operating in three languages. They preach in English and Sinhalese and in Tamil and have to translate every message twice over. And yet it's still not going to 
be a place where people who are extremely poor fit. And I think of the United States. We have all kinds of subcultures in our country. I attend a church right now. It's mostly made of surfers. There are biker groups in our town. There's homeless people in our town. There are people who are extremely rich. When I was in Hope Chapel, Honolulu, the last church that I pastored, a half mile from where our church was located in movie theater were some of the wealthiest people on the island. And I want you to know that they were staying away from our middle-class church in droves. We were ethnically diverse, but we were middle-class. And so we're not reaching the poor people. We're not reaching the rich people. This guy was able to get into unique people groups with the church that he planted. And amazing, amazing story. And so as I look at this thing, I think that there's a, a new operating system that I can take away from this thing. And as I look at it, I think of first a traditional church, number one, operating as a launch platform for church multiplication. The church that I was with in Sri Lanka today has over 2,000 people attending, but they've also planted 2,100 churches. They almost all start as micro churches. Small, a guy who has another career, who's been discipled locally in the church, plants an autonomous church. It has a relationship with the mother church, but it's autonomous. And as they go from there, they're able to reach the country in ways that they wouldn't anyhow otherwise. Some of these microchurches have grown to six or 700 people. The mother church has grown to over 2,000 people 26, 27 years later. This is a model that we could all learn from. So the, the first thing is that a traditional church operates as a launch platform for church reproduction or church multiplication. Secondly, a career-holding pastor leads a church as a freelance church planter. What I mean by this is a guy may be a plumber, he may be a lawyer, he may be a medical doctor like my friend Tom McCarthy was, who planted a church in his house that grew to a thousand people. He maintained his career as a doctor the whole time. Eventually his wife said, you're going to have to choose between the two. He chose medicine. Someone else took over the church. The model involves people who are in our church who are capable of handling the word and pastoring others. Of course, we have to have a pipeline for making disciples who become leaders, who become pastors within the flock. So the first thing is a local church operating as a launch platform for church multiplication. The second is a person who operates as a bivocational, intentionally bivocational freelance pastor who holds his career. Thirdly, these are autonomous. They aren't a department of the church. They aren't home groups within the church. These are churches that are freestanding, that begin to have elders, uh, begin to have all the functions of a church in America. The pastor would do weddings, they would do funerals, baby dedications, they would do baptisms, they would do all of these things uh, at that level. So there's autonomy that's associated with this thing that we're, that we're looking at as an operating system for planting what I'm calling microchurches. And then the church planters remain in fellowship with their home church. This is really key to a lot of churches, especially a smaller church that would like to begin to multiply because instantly you start to think about money. If that guy leaves, and usually the people who are most involved are heavy givers or heavy tithers, uh, we're going to take a financial hit that we might not be able to afford. Well, in the model that I saw in Sri Lanka, in their operating system, the freelance pastor isn't even receiving a salary from the churches that he plants. He receives a salary from his business. He maintains contact with the mother church, with his family, at least for a period of time. If the church grows to five or 600 people, then things are going to change. But 
Otherwise, this person is able to participate in the Mother Church, maybe not to the degree that they used to, but certainly they financially participate, so nobody takes a financial hit. We're going to do a talk a little bit later about liberated finances and, and how liberating finances for the church and for the church planter are a very, very wise thing for us to do. But the fifth part of this operating system is that you penetrate corners of society that would otherwise not interact in any way with the gospel. You're reaching people who otherwise are unreachable. I was on the radio for 29 years in Honolulu. The way the thing worked was we had one station that put us on at 6 in the morning, drive time, another 6 in the evening, drive time. Uh, the morning station decided to do us a favor, and that was to give us a freebie at 9 p.m. They would just rebroadcast whatever we put on that day. We did this five days a week. The way that it shook out, we found that the only people who are listening to the radio at 9 p.m. are people in jail, both in the women's prisons and in the men's prison. I started getting letters from people who were in prison, and I would faithfully write them back. And it was kind of a cool thing to know that I was pastoring people in prison. The sad deal was that a lot of people would get out of jail, come to our church one time, and then never come back again. They didn't fit in a middle-class church. They got, you know, people in those days weren't wearing tattoos like they are today. These guys got tattoos all over their body, and their prison tattoos, they are obviously marked. They just come from an entirely different culture than the people in my church. As time went on, one guy comes out of prison and says he has a message from the guys on the inside, and that is, could we move the radio broadcast from 9 o'clock to 9.30, because they're doing lockdown at 9 p.m. in the prison, the doors are all clanking shut, the guards are yelling, it's difficult to listen to the radio. And so we went to the station, I think they were thrilled that somebody's actually listening at that time of the night, and they very happily moved the thing to 9.30. I got even more letters, again from both the men and the women in prison. The sad thing is that we experienced the very same thing, that they would come to church as soon as they got out, because I was their pastor for several years inside, and then they'd never come back, we'd never see them again. It took years before one of my friends decided that he would start a microchurch, he kept his job, kept his life, stayed involved in our church, and started a microchurch for guys coming out of prison. Very quickly, like within six months, some guy who had gone into prison as a Christian who resented traditional churches comes out, joins these guys, but he lives far away, asks permission, can I start a church on my own for other guys that I know that are coming out of jail? And, you know, at this point, a church is basically a glorified Bible study. The thing that makes it a church is that it's got autonomy and that there's a shepherd there to look after the sheep, there's somebody that endorses that person, and maybe they even take an offering. And this thing happened very quickly. It was just before I left Honolulu, and so I don't have a whole lot to say about that, other than that we were able to reach what had otherwise been an unreached people group for us. During that same period of time in that same church, I had a friend who had been the president of one of the larger banks in Honolulu. He lived about a half mile from our church where people were staying away in droves. I did my best to proselyte this guy. He was attending another church, only person in my life I've ever tried to proselyte. I thought if I could get him into our congregation, I could begin to disciple him. 
he could reach his neighbors in ways that we're not reaching anybody behind those locked gates. You see the possibilities of this thing, that we could put together a package that would easily work within our church. I mean, you could run it as a program of the church. If you do, you're going to probably be a level four church, reproducing, not multiplying. But you could easily take people who are in your church, who are capable of doing more than they're doing, and give them an outward focus, and the kingdom of God could expand, and it could actually expand, I hate to say it this way, but exponentially. Thanks for being with us. Hope you register for the podcast so you get this on a regular basis. And please go to my website, ralphmore.net. There's some things there that will make you smile.